What a wonderful, simple prayer. Well, good morning. Um, I've been here a while too, but if you don't know me, I'm Andrew. I'm the senior pastor here, and uh, it's just a privilege to bring the word this morning. We're going to be in Matthew 23, so if you have your Bibles, I'd just encourage you to uh, open those up and uh, flip over to Matthew 23. It's the first gospel, first book in the New Testament, and uh, we'll be toward the end of the book. Um, before we jump into the Word, and I know we just prayed for the Word, but I want to pray for something else real quick. I want to add just uh, something that we can be praying for together as a church body. Uh, through a variety of means, um, we were connected through Josh and Rachel Young, who are church planters in Clarksville, Tennessee. You've heard about them. You've uh, uh, seen them. Josh has preached for me a couple of times, and um, they're they're still going in Clarksville, and God's doing some amazing things through them. We've also gotten connected a little closer to home to uh, Jonathan Barney and his family. Uh, they've been here a couple of times. Uh, he hasn't preached here, but they've attended here a couple of times, and we're getting to know them. They're doing a church plant in Glendale Heights, um, which only has two evangelical churches for a pretty big population, and so they're planting all people's church. And they did uh, their first launch on Easter Sunday, and today is uh, their second public service. And so at 10.15 today, uh, they're going to have their second public service. So I just want to pray for all people's church as uh, we partner in the gospel, and uh, that's what we love to do. So uh, if you just pray with me for uh, the Barneys and uh, all people's church. Father... um, It's exciting to uh, just watch church planting. Father, uh, Josh and Rachel share regularly just people coming to faith in Christ. Uh, For the first time, coming to know you as their Lord and Savior. And uh, even this week, Jonathan just shared a story of people who have been exploring their missional community and their home and now have started to uh, attend their public gatherings, Lord, that have come to faith. And uh, we rejoice in new life in Christ. Father, uh, we just want to lift up all people's church to you today, Lord, as they gather for the second time uh, in a public way. Lord, I just pray your blessing upon them. I pray for Jonathan as uh, there's been much that's gone into this morning as he uh, has prepared and organized. And Lord, now as uh, he and their team execute, I just pray your blessing on that, Lord, that Uh, that you would be glorified in that work, uh, just as we ask that you are glorified here in this work. Um, But Lord, thank you for the opportunity to uh, have a perspective of how this works and how you're working through it. So Lord, we just ask that you would move this morning here and in Glendale Heights and in Clarksville, Tennessee, Lord, that, uh, that we would just know that you are on the move. And Lord, I just thank you Uh, that we can see evidence of that in so many ways. And so, Lord, move in our hearts and minds today as we open your word now. In Christ's name, amen. Well, it was uh, ironic. I opened up my notes from the last on-target sermon that we uh, did, which was at the end of March. And um, I I opened up my notes because it's easier to start with a template kind of filled in. And so I opened up the last sermon that I had preached on our seven shared values. And I read these words. It's good to be back today. We were all declared negative for COVID. (laughs) And I went, that's irony, isn't it? It's good to be back today. Uh, We were all declared negative for COVID. 
and so last week, I'm just thankful for uh, Mark stepping into kids' time and just, you know, enduring prayer time via video. But um, I'm glad to be back in person, and I'm glad that you're here today. And uh, I hope that you have made plans to uh, run home or be refreshed somehow to go out for brunch and then to be back for the business meeting at 1230. Uh, so I hope that uh, I'll see you twice today uh, and that that will be an encouragement to you because I think it will be. We're going to share several things just in the life of our church. And oftentimes we think of church membership in that category where, where we think, okay, church membership is really about the business of the church. And that is such an important part of church membership, that we're committed to this place, to this organization, and how it functions. And so we have things called business meetings, where we come together as the members of the church. And if, if you're not a member here, you're welcome to come. But just know we're going to be dealing with family business. And so as members, we come together, and, and we seek to... Uh, function as an organization well. But but I'll just say that biblical church membership is far more than that. It, It is this mutual commitment, this shared commitment to one another as we follow Christ together. And so it's really a mutual commitment to help each other to know and to love and to become like Jesus. And so as members here at Meadows, Uh, We've just put forward and adopted seven shared values that we go, okay, these are the things that we would really hope to define our life together here at Meadows. And so we've talked about affirmation, just that, that desire to believe and to celebrate the best about one another. And so when, when we come together, we acknowledge that nobody here is perfect. Can we all acknowledge that? We're all okay with that today? Okay, nobody here is perfect, and that just means that along the way, there's going to be some bumps in the road, some potholes in our relationships, some things that, that get hard, and in those moments, we just want to commit to affirmation. We're going to believe and celebrate the best, and we're going to remind each other what God declares to be true about us in Christ, and there are so many beautiful things. This last week, I've uh, been just kind of reflecting on 1 Peter 2.9, and it, it's just this passage that declares who we are. We're, we're a chosen people. We're this ro- royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's very own possession. That's who we are, and we just want to affirm that about one another. We talked about grace and just the reality that God has demonstrated his grace and his mercy to us in such tangible ways in our salvation. By going to the cross, dying for our sins, by offering us new life in Christ through faith. That's all by grace. Grace is the basis for that relationship. It's motivated by God's love. And so out of that love and grace that overflows to us from God, we just want that to be a distinctive of how we relate to one another. That grace will become more and more frequently our first response to each other. Today we jump into humility and uh, I'm just going to offer a working definition of humility just kind of built out from this text in Matthew and then uh, we'll jump into trust and submission and maturity and unity which is God's ultimate desire for his people. That, That we would be unified in Christ And so we just see these shared values as as things that we want to aim for. And so we've just entitled this On Target. Are we on target together? Are we aiming for these seven shared values together? 
So this morning we step into humility, and here's the risk in preaching on the subject of humility, (laughs) that you might come off as arrogant and proud. Okay, so just can we acknowledge that that's the risk in this, that what I'm going to say this morning about humility might cause you to feel like, well, he's just being arrogant. And so I thought it was appropriate to start here in Matthew because Jesus says some pretty bold things in this text that might come off as arrogant. But the thing is, what I like about this text is it takes humility, this idea, this reality, this attitude, this, this characteristic, this value, out of the context of humility versus arrogance. Now, those two are opposites. Humility, arrogance are opposites, but it takes it out of that context and it puts it into the context of exaltation. And so this text takes humility as a characteristic and it puts it in the context of who are you exalting in your life? And there's really only two possible answers to that question. God, the creator of all things, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the supreme and sovereign ruler of all creation, the one who brought everything into being and sustains everything forever in the ways that he desires. You can exalt God or you can exalt self. Those are the only two possible answers to who will you exalt. And so we see that playing out through Scripture. We can look in the Garden of Eden, and, and that's the tension. Well, who are, who are they going to exalt? Who are they going to make much of? We don't usually use that phrase, to make much of, but that's what exaltation means. It means, what are, what are you going to just put your energy into to show as preeminent or special or unique? What are you going to give yourself to? What are you going to make much of? What are you going to celebrate? What are you going to praise? Those are all things related to exaltation. And so from Adam and Eve on, that's been the tension in our lives. In every human being, we have a fallen nature, a flesh, that wars against the Spirit of God. So even in redeemed people, those who have put their faith and trust and hope in Jesus Christ, those who have found salvation through the message of the good news of Jesus Christ, and are even living, uh, walking by the Spirit to glorify Jesus Christ, we have this tension still within us of the flesh that pulls us away from exalting God to exalt ourselves. And humility in this text is put in that context of who are you going to exalt. It's really a question of exaltation. So let's read uh, these first 12 verses together um, in Matthew chapter 23, <clears throat> starting in verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. 
but you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So this morning, I just want to give you a working definition, and it it really kind of gives us the outline of the text. So here's uh, my working definition of humility based on this text. Humility is a willingness to examine, correct, and direct our own actions, attitudes, and affections according to the scriptures so that with increasing consistency we exalt God and serve others. You go, wow, Pastor Andrew, that's a lot of commas. Yeah, I'm writing like Paul, okay? This is what Paul does. You know, there's whole chapters that are just one sentence in Paul. So, so deal with it, because I think each component of this definition is important. So humility is a willingness. Humility, at its most foundational level, is just a willingness, an easiness, a readiness, a a gentle responsiveness, a willingness to examine. Okay, we have to look into our own selves. Okay, so I, I want you to catch that. This is our own, not your neighbor's, not your spouse's, not your friend's, but your own. Examine your own. Be willing to correct, okay? There are things that need to be corrected in each of our lives. That's just a reality because none of us is perfect. But to know what to correct, we have to examine. And then when it's corrected, how do we direct that? How do we put that into action? So humility is a willingness to examine, correct, and direct our own, not your neighbors, not your spouses, not your friends, Actions, attitudes, and affections. The the things we do, the the things that go on subconsciously that kind of motivate us, and then those things that we love. And I put them in that order because that's the order we see them in the text that we're going to look at. Actions, attitudes, and affections. but, But I think they work in reverse. What we love actually shapes how we think and our motivations, which then results in actions. And so we're kind of stepping backwards to go, what, what's most obvious is your action, but what that reveals is your attitude, and what that reveals is the things that you love, your affections. <clears throat> so humility is a willingness to examine, correct, and direct our own actions, attitudes, and affections According to the scriptures, if we're going to examine and correct and direct anything, we need a standard by which we do that. And as we'll see in the text, that is the scriptures. It's the word of God. It is the authoritative, inspired word of God that men throughout history, carried along by the Holy Spirit, put down on paper for our benefit so that we could 
follow Christ well so that we have a standard by which we can accurately examine, that we can carefully correct and purposefully direct. It's what the scriptures does do in our lives. So that with increasing consistency. So we don't just arrive if we do that. This is an ongoing thing that should develop into an increasing consistency in our lives. So that with increasing consistently consistency, we exalt God and serve one another. In that last phrase, I just want to want you to hear the the, the great commandment. That you would love God, that you would make much of God, that you would exalt God, and that you would love your neighbor. Humility will be evidenced in how we exalt God and serve others. All right, let's jump into the text. I just want to look at the context and the flow of the text and, and draw us back into this definition. And so it says, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, Jesus said, now this is different than what's happened in the last couple of chapters. Jesus is going to make a statement now. The way that he has primarily been interacting with people in the last couple of chapters since his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem is through parables or through asking or answering questions. So now he's going to make a statement, and it's, it's interesting how he starts this statement. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. What, what in the world does this mean? They, they sit on Moses' seat, and... Just as, as I've studied this out, there's, there's two primary uh, thoughts on this. One, that Moses' seat would represent uh, a seat of teaching or instruction, where in the synagogue, uh, those that would read and instruct in the Torah, they would stand to read the Torah. Okay, that's, that's where we get, you know, from time to time, we stand to read the Word together. Uh, That's just the practice, showing honor to the word of God. And so uh, a teacher would stand, the scribes and Pharisees in the synagogues would stand and read the word, and then they would sit and expound on the word. So they would teach from a a seated position, which we see in Luke 4, as Jesus comes into his hometown synagogue, and uh, they're like, hey, Jesus is home. We've heard he's become a pretty good teacher. Jesus, would you come and would you share a word with us? And he calls for the scroll of Isaiah, and it says he stands and reads the word, and then he sits down and begins to instruct them in it. So that's one possible interpretation, and I I, I think it's fine. I think both of these could be true. But in Exodus 18, we get a story of Moses judging the people. And, And it says that he sat in a place of judgment, and he was getting worn out by this because there were so many people. Israel was multiplying like crazy, and there's all these problems. They've just come out of Egypt, and he's trying to get this nation underway. And everybody's coming to him, and his father in law, Jethro, comes to him and says, Hey, you know what? I have a solution for you. Can I make a suggestion? And Moses is like, sure, man. I'll take whatever you got. He goes, you should set up judges, people that would arbitrate these questions over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. You should set up this system of judges where you don't have to hear every case that others can come to other people. And then in Deuteronomy, we get this instruction again. 
where, where as the law is being restated to a new generation, in chapter 16 it says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates. That Yahweh, your Elohim, is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. God tells the people, hey, you should set up judges that are going to sit at the gate of the city so that you always know where they're at. So when you have a problem, you can come to the judge, and the judge will hear you, and the judge will judge rightly. Those seats were called the seat of Moses. And so this is a a legal courtroom scene that we're starting to step into. And we we can see that as we look back in chapter 22. So, so what's happened in the context is Jesus has come into Jerusalem for the last time. He's on his way to the cross. We get the triumphal entry. We get the cleansing of the temple. And then all of a sudden, the case begins. See, Jesus' trial began way before he's arrested. It begins right here in the book of Matthew, where the first question that the Pharisees come with is, who gave you that authority? Jesus just did something just appalling, very, very threatening to go into the temple and to clean it out. And the Pharisees are like, hey, who gave you that kind of authority? And Jesus answers them in a way that they can't refute it. But in that moment, the trial is on. And so in chapter 22, we get these various witnesses that the Pharisees, these enemies of Jesus, are calling onto the stand. And so the Pharisees, uh, they say, hey, you know what? We're going to try to entangle him in his words. In chapter 22, that's the exact phrase. They go, we're going to try to entrap him by getting him to say something that the jury would go, whoop, he's guilty. And so they start this way, hey, who do we pay taxes to? Okay, we're God's people, we're this holy nation, we're this royal priesthood, we're people of God's own possession. Who do we pay taxes to? And it's this legal question that they put to him. And so they call some witnesses. Hey, there's Caesar, and you know, we're, we're called this way, and Jesus answers them in a way that they're like, oh, we didn't get him. So then they kind of regroup and they send the scribes to talk about the resurrection. Hey, is the resurrection a real thing or not? Because the scribes, the Sadducees, they they rejected the resurrection. And, and, And so they're coming to him and again, he answers them in a way that they're like, we didn't get him. And so they're like, okay, we actually need a real lawyer on the scene. And so they call a lawyer in and the lawyer comes and he goes, hey, you're a good teacher. Tell me this. What's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answers again. And at the end of that section, it says, and they ask no more questions. (laughs) Because his answers were just too good. But, But we have this courtroom scene and people have started to gather. You know, courtroom scenes, whether they're in a book or in a movie or in a TV show or in real life, they tend to draw an audience. They're compelling to us. We go, yes, we want justice. How's this going to work out? And so there's a crowd assembling around Jesus, around the Pharisees. And every time they kind of come together, people are like, hey, we're going another round. Come on over. Okay, court's back in session. 
And this whole idea of the seat of Moses, that yes, there is this judgment going on, sets the context of this courtroom scene. And so Jesus comes and he says, this is final argument time. This is is the final statement. Here it is. This is what we need to listen to. And he says, The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you. Well, he seems then to contradict himself in the next phrase. But what he's saying is, hey, you know what? God appointed those people in charge. That's what Deuteronomy told the people of God. You're supposed to appoint these judges that will rule over them as God gives them to you. God's going to put people in place. He's going to put leaders in place. And this is kind of a bonus point. I I think that just means that whoever seems to be in charge, humility is still God's desire. So he's saying, hey, I know that these Pharisees He's about ready to call them hypocrites and vipers and whitewashed tombs. He's about ready to call them dead in all that they do. He goes, I know that they're not good leaders. But when they sit in that seat, they are speaking authoritatively as the person God appointed. So do what they say. Respect their authority. Trusting that God has a purpose and plan in who he's appointed. So right from the get-go, he's really challenging their attitude about who do we exalt. And if we exalt God, if we're, we're giving our exaltation to God, if we're making much of God, what does that mean in real life? It means that no matter who's in charge, humility is God's desire. And it's possible. This characteristic of humility can be present no matter who seems to be in charge. He says, but do not do what they do. Okay, listen to what they say, but don't emulate their lives. Why? For they preach, but do not practice. For they preach, but do not practice. Jesus is telling the people, he says, okay, God has put them on the seat of judgment. So you have to listen to what they say. We're going to be submissive to their authority. And yet, you don't have to live the way they live. Because what they do is they've read the scriptures. They have some understanding of the scriptures. But the scriptures have not been allowed to examine and correct and direct their actions attitudes, and affections. The scriptures have fallen on hard soil. They have not taken root. They have not borne fruit in their lives of this good and godly living. And so what he's saying is they're hypocrites in that they read scripture, they know scripture, but scripture is not having an effect on their lives. And I would just say we are all at risk of that. We're all at risk of that. To spend time in this book and to say these are really good words and even to seek understanding them. But if we do not apply them to our lives, if we do not allow the scriptures to examine and correct 
and direct our lives, we'll never know humility. Scripture is that authority. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. Okay, this is God's Word. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That means that Scripture has permission in your life. You have this willing openness, this readiness to hear from the Word of God and to allow it to examine your actions, attitudes, and affections. That means that we come to this book and and we allow our actions, okay, what we can easily see, does it line up with Scripture? Okay, how about our attitudes? What's a little bit below the surface? How about our affections? Right at the core of our heart, do they align with the Scriptures? And the Scriptures are useful for that. That's what they're made for. They're sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword that penetrates right to that core part of who we are, what we love. And they will correct. This text is about a journey, you know, this text in 2 Timothy. Timothy, you're on this journey, but when you step off, when you trip off the path, the Scriptures will help you get back on target. The scriptures will help you get back on the path and to stay there a little bit longer this time with increasing consistency. And they'll equip you. They will direct you. They will show you the way to go so that your life has purpose, so that your life bears fruit. But the Pharisees had rejected the application of scripture. They were un willing to allow the scriptures to examine, to correct, and to direct their actions, attitudes, and affections. How did they get to that place? Well, let's look at their actions. Here's what Jesus says about their actions. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Okay, so, so this is kind of a, a, a double whammy. Okay, what the Pharisees have been all about, what the Sadducees, what the scribes, what this uh, conglomerate of the enemies of Jesus have been about is making it hard to follow God. They're oppressing people. And so what we get is this oppression. The opposite of humility, whatever you want to, whatever word you want to use, pride or arrogance, will lead you to oppress other people. It will lead you to cause other people to have a burden. And the double whammy is that you'll sit back and go, and there's nothing I can do about it. The Pharisees had tied up these bundles that were so heavy for people, and they've been like, yep, here you go, (laughs) keep keep walking. Isn't that great? They've done it on purpose. They've done it actively, where it makes very difficult the pursuit of God. And then they've sat back, and they've just watched the agony of people. They were in a position where they could have said, hey, you know what? We're going to remove all the burdens. It just takes our little finger, boop. But they go, no, we're not even going to do that. 
their actions were actions of oppression. They were heavy on the people. So it's not just Egyptian slave masters that tend to oppress people. It can be good religious people. And so I just encourage us, can we allow the scriptures to examine our actions, to correct our actions, to direct our actions so that we can be humble and not create burdens for people and bear each other's burdens together. The only way that we can live out the last text that we looked at two weeks ago in Galatians, to to bear each other's burdens is to allow the scriptures to examine, correct, and direct our actions so that we're not becoming oppressive people, but so that we're becoming servants. We're, We're not becoming masters. We're becoming fellow servants to one another. Well, those actions came from somewhere. And so uh, here's their motivation. Here's their attitudes in verse 5. They do all their deeds. Here's what motivates their deeds to be seen by others. Oh, we need the scriptures to examine, correct, and direct our attitudes. Because our hearts are desperately wicked. Our hearts are ready and eager to deceive us into thinking more about ourselves than we ought to. And what we tend to do in the attitudes of our heart, we may not live this out in our actions, but in our attitudes we might go, well, I'm better than they are. And and, and so how did that manifest itself? This is attitude... That, yes, manifests itself in action, but we see their attitude in this. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. The phylacteries were uh, the, the things that an Orthodox Jew would wrap around their arm or around their forehead. And by making them broad, by making them thick, they were easy to see. And so what they're doing is in their attitude of, I am holier than you, I am better than you, I am more significant and important than you, and I'm going to demonstrate that by making sure that you see that I am this super religious person. And so I'm going to make my phylacteries broad so that you can see them very clearly. And the fringes would have been on their prayer shawl. And the fringes would have stretched out. They would have been ornate. So that as they walk through town, people are like, whoa, there goes a spiritual person. There goes someone who has it all together. There goes somebody that I'll never measure up to. The scriptures have to get into our attitudes to examine and correct and direct our attitudes because our tendency is to think of ourselves as more important than others. But humility sees others as more important than ourselves. That's an attitude that we are to take on. But unless we are allowing the scriptures to examine, correct, and direct our attitudes, our tendency will be to consider ourselves more important than other people. And whether that's through action or just how we present ourselves, 
that will come out. It did in the lives of the Pharisees. But those actions, the oppression, comes from this attitude of we're more important than you, which comes from an affection. What do the Pharisees love? Verse 6, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Here's what they love. Here's what they crave. Self-exaltation. Here's what they greatly desire. This is what they crave and covet. They want people to go, wow, you're amazing. So why don't you come up to the head of the table? Why why don't you take this, the best seat in the synagogue? Oh, we will call you rabbi. That's what they love. They thrive on other people making much of them. Because at their core, they desire to make much of themselves. And there's only two responses to that. We will either make much of God or we will make much of ourselves. Willingly, readily, openly, allowing the Scriptures to examine, to correct and direct our actions, attitudes, and our affections will bring about with increasing consistency an exaltation of God, not yourself. So often, though, we need others on that journey. So often, we are blind to what needs to be corrected. We are blind to what needs to be directed. And we need other people to help us to see that. Now, that does not mean that that gives us permission to say, hey, brother, hey, sister, here's where you're wrong. What we must do is lovingly bring the Scriptures to one another. It has been sad to me over these last months as there has been so much conflict how hard it has been to have robust conversations with the Scriptures open. I've been sent sermons, I've been sent book recommendations, which I have listened to and read. I have been given other opinion over and over and over again. But when I say, let's open the Scriptures, the conversation stops short. People, we have to come to this book as our authority alone. It is not our opinion of one another It is not someone else's opinion. It is our study, our sincere and faithful study of Scriptures together. And that alone, that examines, corrects, and directs. And when we look at anything else, 
Not that those things don't help us understand Scripture, because they do. But when we look at anything else without looking at Scripture, we short-circuit humility. And we end up exalting ourselves. We end up with the wrong attitude of, I'm more important than everybody else. And we end up oppressing each other. And it is not God's desire for his people. And so he lovingly, graciously gave us his word. That saves us from ourselves and that saves us from our self-righteousness in imposing our own view on other people. That's not our place because nobody's perfect here. So let's just open the word together and go, hey, can we willingly together allow this book Allow these words to examine and correct and direct our actions, attitudes, and affections for the glory of God that we would make much of God and that we would serve one another. Oh, that will breed humility. Beautiful, beautiful humility among God's people. And he longs for that. And I long for that. And I think at the core of our being, we all long for that. And so I just say, can can we make a commitment this morning that we go, okay, we're coming to the Word. We will willingly, that means we're going to lay down other things, we will willingly come to the Scriptures. And so when we start having conversations that are hard and challenging, but good, okay, we have to have these conversations, but we'll just go, hey, can we open the Scriptures and go, yes, let's willingly open the Scriptures the scriptures. And and we might not agree on what the scriptures say. And we're going to have to be okay with that tension, but we're going to have to continue to come back to, well, what do we think the scriptures say? We're going to have to cry out to God by his spirit, would you illuminate the scriptures for us? Because it's not my interpretation, it's not your interpretation. We have to wait on God to reveal his scriptures to us. So can we get together around the scriptures? Can we pray together? And then can we seek to serve one another out of what the scriptures say? That probably means let's not start with the hardest passages to interpret. That suggests that we should just start with what's clear. Are we living that out? Is what's clear in Scripture informing our attitudes and actions and affections? Is that happening or not? Jesus goes on. He says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. The Holy Spirit is our one teacher. Okay, Jesus Christ promised, I'm going to send you a helper who's going to reveal all this stuff to you. Can we trust that? And you are all brothers. Guess what? We're all on the journey together, whether we like it or not. Here's where we are. Here's where God has put us for now. For however long you're around meadows, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Nobody is above someone else. Not a pastor, not an elder, not a ministry leader. Not someone older, not somebody younger. We're all brothers and sisters and we're just on this journey. And we don't call anybody father because we have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors for you have one instructor, 
the Christ. Do we model Jesus? Can can you say that because of how we've done life together, you are more like Jesus? And many of you can, and I'm so thankful. I'm so excited with what God is doing in Christ, in us. It's awesome. It's beautiful. So here's just the, the final litmus test. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Do we just serve one another? With humility and grace and affirmation? Do we come alongside one another and help each other bear burdens that are on our shoulders? Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is a willingness to examine, correct, and direct our own actions, attitudes, and affections according to the Scriptures so that with increasing consistency we exalt God and serve others. Let's pray. Father, um, just thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the example that we have in Jesus Christ, our one instructor. Thank You that we all call You Father, that we're all part of Your family. Thank You that we have Your Spirit who will teach us So, Father, I pray that we would grow in our willingness to just allow your word, the scriptures, to examine us, to correct us, to direct us, so that we will make much of you, God, so that we will serve one another. Thank you, in Christ's name, amen.